I just wanted to kind of as we're getting started, um, with it being a new year and all of this, everybody starts to think, you know, just like Tim was saying, like, oh, I've got to improve on something for the next year. I've got to be better. I've got to not be the way I was. All of those sorts of things. And, and I just love the end of that, la- that second verse that we say. I think it's the second. Second or third. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Like, like we know we're bad. We know we're broken. We know that our, our relationship with God has been broken. And we know that there's this, this, this huge divide between us and Him. And we know, well, at least those of us who are saved, know and understand that Jesus takes that away and He cleans us and He, and he makes us pure and he, he welcomes us back into His family. And He basically makes us sons and daughters of God. We're brothers and sisters as sons and daughters of God. And so, I just wanted to take a few minutes at the start of this year before we get going. We're going to have a prayer night tonight and we're going to spend a lot of time praying tonight. And I love that we're going to spend a lot of time praying tonight. But for right now, I just want to take a few minutes and just pray. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you guys a couple of minutes just to kind of pray on your own. Just pray that God would change your heart this year, starting this morning, to be more passionately chasing after Jesus and looking more and more like Jesus every single day. And that it wouldn't be that we're just going to to settle in and just be like, all right, I got a good thing going. Everything was set last year. We're set. We're good. But, but just pray that God would motivate us to, to remember who we were, who we have been, so that as we move forward, as, as we're going through this new year, that He would just continue to motivate us to desire to be more and more like Him. So just take a few minutes and just ask God to start moving in your heart right now, and then I'll pray for us here in just a few minutes. God, it's so easy for me to fall into the state of just being passive and being happy with where I am and satisfied and or to just become discouraged. Oh, there's just it's just too hard. I'll just I'll just be happy with where I am. I'll just stay here. And God, I pray that that you would you would again reveal yourself to me as ultimately desirable and everything that I want and all satisfying. And God, I just pray that, that for us here and for, for this church and for the people who aren't here this morning with us, that, that you, would be, you would be after our hearts and, and filling us with this, this, this unquenchable thirst for more of you. That, that, that we've, come, we've come through the Christmas time, we've given gifts, we've gotten things, and, and it's great and we're happy and we're thankful for the blessings that you've given us. But God... I just pray that those wouldn't be the things that we're trying to find our satisfaction in. That the things that we have or the things that we don't yet have that we still want wouldn't be what drives us. But God, that we would desire to be so close to you and have so much of you that that would just continue to motivate us every moment of every day. That we would desire to be more and more like you. God, make much of yourself during this year at CRC. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. So you can start turning back to Matthew. We took a little break.
Matthew chapter 14. So I'm really excited to say that we're jumping right back into Matthew and it's not going to be happy at all. It's going to be horribly depressing. We're killing one of Jesus' favorite people in the whole world today. And by we, I don't mean me. So, here we go. I think there's, there's some sort of connection to be made to the fact that last night was New Year's Eve and lots of people go out on New Year's Eve and party way too hard and then make horrible decisions because they partied way too hard. And that's what Herod's going to do in the story today. He's going to party way too hard and he's going to make a really dumb decision based off of um, having partied too hard. So, so if you need some sort of connection to get you into the mindset, it's don't party too hard and I hope you didn't party too hard last night. I, I was, I was, I mean, I was awake at midnight, but I was, we didn't even have it on the channel. We didn't even have it on the channel. It was like, oh, hey, happy new year. That was our night. So I was finishing getting this sermon ready and, and Jesus was kind enough to give me the perfect passage to kind of tie this whole thing together. So when we get there. I hope it's as impactful on you as the light bulb moment was for me last night when he was like, no, this is how you should close this. This is where this verse goes. This is what you should do with this passage. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 14. I'm just going to go ahead and read straight through the story so we kind of get the idea of what is going on. And then we're going to try to struggle together to figure out how we're going to practically apply uh, killing John the Baptist to our lives. Because believe me, it's a challenge to apply the killing of John the Baptist to our lives in some sort of practical sense. But I have, I have a feeling that, that, that God is going to do something with this passage this morning. So let's go ahead and read it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. I'm just going to stop right there because it's been a month and we need a little bit of context. Jesus has been doing some really amazing things recently, right? Jesus has been going all around, healing sick, performing miracles. He's had these large crowds coming to him. They've been saying, hey, we want to be with this guy. This guy's doing amazing things. And Jesus is constantly being challenged, not only by the people who misunderstand why he's there and are desiring to lift him up, elevate him, make him a king, but he's also being facing, he's been facing lots of pushback from the religious people, the religious leaders, the guys who, who don't like that he's coming in and kind of changing the system, overthrowing some of their authority, making them feel a little bit less important. So he's been facing lots of opposition. And I think what we're going to hear, what we're seeing here is just this, this reminder. At that time, Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. So, so he knows what's going on. He understands a bit of what this movement is looking like and how that is affecting the people that he is supposedly ruling over. Um, so uh, just to get that in mind, that's the situation that we're in. Jesus is doing big, amazing, powerful things. Lots of people are starting to follow him. But at the same time, he's also facing lots of opposition. So verse 2, and he, that's Herod, said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. 
And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Happy New Year. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John the ba- John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Cheery, right? Happy, lovely. So let's get just a little bit of context of who all we're talking about and what all is going on here. Um, Herod the Great, so we got a couple of different Herods, and we got to know which, one, which Herod we're talking about here. Herod the Great was this Herod's father. Herod the Great was the guy that we read about when we talk about um, the birth of Jesus, and then Herod, out of fear, trying to kill this new king that's been born, goes out and kills all of the, the, the male children four years old and under, Right? That's this guy's dad. That's the guy who was over all of the region of Israel. And when he died, his kingdom was kind of divided up into three parts and given to three of his sons. One of his sons, this one here, and this is Herod Antipas, um, he was ultimately the one who Jesus is going to come and be tried in front of. He was the one who was over this region of Israel where most of Jesus' ministry was taking place. So it makes sense that he would have heard of who Jesus was and what was happening because this is just kind of his domain. These were the people that, that he was hearing about. And these are the people he was supposedly supposed to be ruling over. So just to give you an idea, we have heard the name Herod before and that's why. And, and, and every time we hear Herod, we, we usually hear of him doing something really wicked, really awful, really broken, really gross, really disgusting, something like that. And we see a couple of those things happen in this story. So he hears about the fame of Jesus, and, and what, you, what we realize after verse 2 is that most of this story, the, the meat of this story is really more of a flashback. Like, like Matthew's saying, this had already happened, and here's how it happened. But because of all of this stuff that was happening, Herod, who was this kind of spiritual, superstitious person, as many of the Roman government would be, um, feared, oh, this is some resurrected John the Baptist ghost who's walking around performing all these things. And he was afraid. He's like, this guy that I killed is out to get me. I didn't even want to kill him, but I killed him. And now he's coming back to haunt me. Which, which just kind of gives you an idea of, of kind of the spiritual outlook, the spiritual mindset of the people who were leading, ruling, not leading, but ruling over Israel at this point and kind of where their spiritual mindset was. They didn't have any understanding of who God was. They were more filled with superstition and fear and kind of this false spirituality um, that, really, that really leads to nothing, um, but in this case, just kind of fear that something bad's going to happen because he had committed this thing. So then it goes back and tells us this whole story. And I just want to give you some of the details because if you didn't think that this was broken and, and twisted enough, I just want to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. So Herod, Herod had been married, he had a wife, and his brother Philip had a wife, Herodias, who we read about in this story. Um, and, and I'm pulling some of this from just some extra biblical history, um, but, but they, at some, I don't know if it was an event or a vacation or something like that, they decided that they loved each other a lot, and that they decided that 
that he, Herod decided, I'm going to leave my wife. You need to divorce my brother so that we can be married. And I would go ahead and I'm just going to preface with, that's not a good thing. Like, don't do that. Like, if you get nothing else, don't do that. Don't divorce your spouse and force your brother or sister's spouse to divorce so that y'all can get married. That's a bad idea. It's a bad plan. It leads to all sorts of pain. And, and John was not afraid to tell him that. John was not afraid to say, that is sin. You should not do that. And because he became this kind of antagonistic voice in the back of Herod's mind that he kept hearing, you are in sin. This is not something you're supposed to do. Herod had John thrown in prison. He said, I'll just put him over here where he can't bother me anymore. It's not going to be a thing. Out of sight, out of mind. No one's going to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. I'm going to be super comfortable continuing to live in my sin or however I want to, just like that. So, one day, Herod's having a party, and it says, Herodias' daughter danced for him, and it pleased him. Now, I, I want you to get the context here. Herodias' daughter was probably something like 12 or 14 years old in this instance. And when it says she did a dance that pleased him, you can kind of gather what it's talking about, what kind of dance she might have been doing that would make somebody who's been partying too hard. What? This is his niece. Maybe even, I don't know. They're, 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 their relationships are all sorts of weird. So this is, like, this is like this kind of weird, incestual, gross thing that she's doing. And, and he's like, I'm really happy that this is happening right now. I want to give you anything that you want. I want you to get in mind just how wicked and broken their sin was. Because in just a minute, I'm going to tell you that our sin is just as wicked and broken. Spoiler alert. So they're going through this whole thing, and he sees this, and he says, that's it. I want to give you anything you want. This, this was good. You did a good job. I want to give you any, anything that you want. Ask. And, and her mom comes and says, this is the chance. Why don't we ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter? Let's finally get him killed. Because here's the thing. As much as Herod disliked the voice of John the Baptist in the back of his head, what we see is that he was too afraid to kill him. He knew he had a large following. He knew that the people that were under him liked him. He was scared of a revolt, which is actually a kind of a, a similar thing that we're going to see play throughout the leadership and people that try important biblical figures later on, is that they're afraid to do anything to him because they're afraid that the people are going to rise up against them. Right? We're going to see that later on with Pilate when Jesus is brought before. He's, he doesn't want to do anything because this guy's done nothing wrong. These people like him. There's no reason for me. So, so what we see is that even though Herod didn't like him, he wasn't even man enough to kill him himself. It took, it took a little girl asking for him to kill him for him to finally do it. And he said, I'm more afraid of my party guests now than I am those people out here. So I'm going to, I'm going to grant this request. And he has John the Baptist beheaded as a way of saying thanks for that really disgusting thing that just happened. This really offensive thing that I just had you do. I'm going to kill somebody as a reward for that. That's your payment. Thanks. Way to go. So he used this as an excuse to finally silence the voice of truth, the voice of holiness, the voice that was kind of 
in the back of his mind, and I'm sure weighing on him pretty heavily that, that what he, the life that he was living, the things that he was doing were sinful and broken and wicked, and he didn't want to hear that anymore. And so there's a couple of things here that I really think in this story that I want us to focus on. Uh, the first thing is that the voice of holiness is not a popular voice. Um, if you are speaking biblical truth to someone, especially someone who is not a believer, someone who does not have the Holy Spirit also helping to convict them, that is not going to be a message that they are going to receive gladly and be like, thank you. I'm so glad you told me that everything in my life is offensive to God. That's not, that's not the response that an unbeliever is going to have. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. Even, even as believers, we don't like to be told that we're wrong most of the time. Sometimes we're ready to hear it. But a lot of the time, and you're smiling because you know that that's me. I don't like to be told when I'm wrong. But the voice of holiness is an unpopular voice. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this because I, I saw an article online, well, on Facebook. So somebody, I'm trying to think how to give the best context for this. Okay, so there's a pastor in Atlanta who has a really big church. When I say really big church, I mean like 20, 30,000 people. Like, like really big church. Like, like their, their small community groups are probably twice the size of our church. Just, just to give you context, really big church. He has this really big following, and, and he's kind of been facing some criticism from other members of the church who are saying, you are misrepresenting the gospel. You're taking the hard pieces out. You're taking the, the parts that people don't want to hear and you're kind of putting them to the side. Um, and recently he even preached a sermon where he said, I'm going to not focus on the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm not going to focus on these big miraculous things because people don't want to hear about miracles. They need to hear about you know, logical things and they need to be hear about things that, that, make, that make the gospel more approachable rather than being told that there's this crazy thing that seems ho horribly impossible and there's no way that I could ever believe it. And so, and so he had preached this sermon and the church had kind of, and some people in the church had kind of gone back and forth writing articles because this is how we argue in the church apparently is, is through writing articles back and forth at each other. But, I mean, I read the articles so I guess I'm a part of it too. But, so I saw kind of a response to, I saw a response to the response to his, his manner of approaching um, preaching the gospel. And, and the article was basically saying, what you don't understand is that he's preaching to more people who don't know Jesus than you. And that his audience is people that don't understand this. So it makes sense that he would give them a different message than we give to our church on most Sunday mornings. Because most of us are preaching to a group of believers. People who understand the gospel. And I just feel like if we're taking pieces away from the gospel and not really representing how God wants to be revealed, how he reveals himself to us as this God of wrath who hates sin and that we are broken people who have a relationship that's been severed from him. If we don't get to that part and we don't talk about how miraculous it is, the things that he does, the, 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 the amazing ways that he changes our lives, the, the ways that he has worked to bring about salvation. I mean, we talked about this over the last month. How amazing it is, the, the way that God brought Jesus here, that story, that storyline, those people that he used for thousands of years 
to make sure that Jesus was born at this exact time in history, that he could be working these miracles. If, if we weren't supposed to know that the things that Jesus was doing was miraculous, then Jesus wouldn't have come performing miracles and saying, look at the amazing things that the power of God is able to do. And I say all this because, because in a lot of pockets of, I'm going to call it Christianity. We'll call it Christianity, but it's not necessarily, I don't know how to say this. In, in churches, in church buildings, I'm worried that the voice of opposition, like John was able to present, a voice calling people to account for sin and saying, God is holy and He demands holiness and the only way to be with Him is to be holy yourselves. You have to separate yourself from the sin in which you live. Let me tell you, what you're doing right now is sin. That was the approach that John the Baptist was taking. What was Jesus' approach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to not be the way that we are. He was not afraid to say, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. These are things that we cannot do. These are things that are not pleasing to God. And I think it's interesting that a church, and I'm, not, I'm really not trying to make a point about the church, but, but we see how receptive people are to a gospel that doesn't call them to account for their sin. And I don't want us to be a people who are, for the sake of making what we're presenting more palatable to unbelievers, are not willing to also say, I believe that this is a sin in your life, and it's not pleasing to God. That does not mean that I'm saying, don't love people and don't build relationships with people, but also be honest with people about the things in their life that you don't think God would have them be doing. That's a, hard, that's a hard balance to strike. That is a fine line to walk. Because, and because we know what everybody outside of the church's favorite verse in the Bible is now, right? It used to be that. Now it's, what is it? Math, it's what? 7-1. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's the one that everybody loves now. Because they're trying to say, don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. God told you not to. And that's not the point. He's saying... If you know the if you don't if you if you judge somebody based on a standard you are saying I am also held accountable to that same standard. And if we as believers understand what the standard is, what holiness is, then then at that point we understand why we need to be telling people this is sin. This isn't good. These things that you're doing, we have lists. If you've been coming on Sunday night at all for any of the last year, we've been reading through, we read through the whole Pentateuch. And so we went through Leviticus, and we went through all of these little pieces of law, and you're like, wow, that's specific. There's no way that we could get that specific in our sin. There's no way, there's no way that, I mean, I'm sure as Moses is writing it down, right, that he's sitting there thinking, God, there's no way, there's no way that we're going to be doing these things. Like if you read it, there are some very specific sins in the law. And God says, no, this is going to be a thing. And you're going to have to tell people not to do that thing. I'm not going to pick one particular sin that's rampant in our society just to harp on it. Because I think that would only make you focus on that particular sin. But I think that 
I would rather encourage you to think through the relationships that you have in your life. Think through the people that, that you are hoping to see know Jesus and love him and passionately serve him, but have some sin in their life that they need to be told that is a thing. Two. And think about how do I strike that balance of showing them love, but also not softening the gospel to the point that they don't truly understand what it is that God demands. Because if we're softening the gospel, if we're not really presenting a true, a true version of the gospel, then what's the foundation that they're actually going to be building on? We can't just be comfortable with giving people a pass for the sake of making sure that we're able to build a good relationship with them or make sure that they're, they feel comfortable enough to hear us talk more. you want to, turn to Ezekiel chapter 33, because I think, I think this passage perfectly sums up what I'm trying to say here. So here, Ezekiel, and, and, and this, is, this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Ezekiel. I think it's become my favorite book of the Bible, um, because he was always asked to do really specific, like physical things. So that, chapter 33, sorry, Ezekiel 33. Uh, he was asked to like perform specific actions that would then represent how God was dealing with the people or how he felt about the people. And he makes it really obvious. He says, I'm going to have you do this thing so that the people see it. And when they ask why, you can then say, because God is trying to say this thing to you. And so Ezekiel keeps being this example of how God is dealing with Israel or how he would have Israel... Um, live their lives. And I think if we look at Israel as a picture for the church, then we can kind of get the vibe here of what God is desiring for us as the church to be. So this is Ezekiel chapter 33. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Then he heard the, he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... So that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. So what he's trying to say is, he's saying this to Ezekiel, but I think it applies to the church as well. You understand the things of God. I have revealed these things to you. I have revealed what is sin. I have told you that I am coming in wrath to obliterate sin. That's going to happen. 
So what he's saying is, if you actually know these things and you don't tell people that it's coming, that's on you. It's on us. And I think John the Baptist understood that. I think he said, this might not be a popular thing for me to say. This might not go well for me if I present this truth to Herod, that he is living in sin and he is offending God and he needs to not be living this way. He needs to change these things about his life. That's not going to be popular. That's not going to necessarily make us friends. But at the same time, we have been told what is right and wrong. What is the standard? We understand what God's standard is. He gave us his standard in this book. He said, this is how I desire my people to live. And John the Baptist understood that it would have been on him if he didn't say something. And ultimately, it cost him his life. Right? The last time we had heard it from John the Baptist, he was in prison and he was asking Jesus, are you really the one? Is this it? And he said, this is really it. But just so you know, you're going to die in jail. This isn't going to end well for you now. But right after that, Jesus said to everybody who was around him, no one, has, no one ever who has lived and walked on the earth was as great as John the Baptist. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want us to understand. Is that not even the greatest human apart from Jesus to ever walk on the face of the earth was above martyrdom for obeying what God had called him to do. It's not... It, I don't, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to just say... This is what our life is as the church. This is, we, we, understand, we understand what we've been called to do. We understand what truth we've been called to present. And we present it knowing the risk. But, but it's so much better that we would say, God is coming in wrath, and we don't want you to be under that wrath. We love you too much to say, you just keep doing what you're doing. And surely God, in His kindness, will relent. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you need to realize that everything about you, everything about me is broken and offensive to God. And if not for what Jesus did, I had no hope. But because I know Jesus died for me, he died to save me. He died that I might have new life. If you'd gone a couple chapters ahead in Ezekiel, he uses this example of I had a heart, a heart made of stone and God took that heart of stone out of me and gave me a new Heart. I was dead. I was alive. So good. Read Ezekiel. It's fantastic. But because we understand that, we have to present that. Even if it's unpopular. Even if it's not something that, that the world wants to hear because it challenges their way of life. The way the world works right now is anything that I believe to be true, you not only need to let me believe, but you also need to love and accept and maybe even celebrate it as true as well. That's the world's approach to truth right now. It's, it's don't challenge what I believe, that's offensive. But we know what real truth is and what real truth calls us to do is to present exactly what God's standard is because we know, because we've been changed by it, because we now have hope. We have been saved from that. And it, and, and it might be unpopular here. It might not be something that you want to hear here. And it might not work out well for you. Obviously, it didn't work out, right, work out well for John the Baptist in that moment. But ultimately, it, it, it's better to, 
to lo- what is it? lose your life for the sake of Christ. Because ultimately, that's how you gain Him. You gain life with Him. You give up everything. We, we, we use this word surrender, right? We use this word, surrender yourself to God. Give Him all of you. Follow Him with everything that you have. You're also surrendering not just your heart, not just your obedience, but you're also surrendering your, your potential comfort and safety here and now for the sake of a better payoff, a better reward at the end. And John understood that. So the question that I have for us today is, who will you be? Will you be the one who, who, in an attempt to make sure that you have good, strong relationships with people and, and you're not offending people and you have lots of people who come to you because it's really easy to hang out with you, but you're not going to push people hard? Or are you going to be the one who loves people, tries to build relationships with people, but is not afraid to say hard things? when hard things need to be said for the sake of accurately representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who will you be? Let's pray.